This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Wilford McClay is the G.T. and Libby Blankenship Chair in the History of Liberty at the University of Oklahoma, where he is also Director of the Center for the History of Liberty. Over the past year, he's also served as the Ronald Reagan Professor of Public Policy at Pepperdine University in California. Dr. McClay earned his Ph.D. from Johns Hopkins University and is a renowned historian and award-winning author. His first major book was The Masterless, Self and Society in Modern America, which won the Merle Curdy Award of the Organization of American Historians. It was recognized then as the best book of the year in American intellectual history. His most recent book is Land of Hope, an invitation to the great American story, which has already won the Intercollegiate Studies Institute Conservative Book of the Year Award. In addition to his academic work, Dr. McClay currently serves on the U.S. Commission on the Semi-Quincentennial, that is, the 250th anniversary of the United States. That will come in the year 2026. Professor Wilford McClay, welcome to Thinking in Public. Dr. McClay, for uh, several decades now of scholarship and public influence, as well as teaching, you've been, in one way or another, telling the American story. But in one sense, to even to say the word story, much less the American story, is to enter into an argument. Why is that so, just as we get started in this conversation? Well, I think that that um, part of the reason why it has uh, the use of term that academics really like to use uh, that that American American story has become contested um, is that the the writing of history, uh, especially by professional historians, academically trained PhDs in our leading research universities, uh, has become uh, you know, politicized. Um, uh, and hyper-specialized. And those two things, which are not always the same, some, some very uh, respectable academic historians, don't, their work isn't necessarily ideologically tainted or, or uh, distorted, but, but um, because they're so specialized and they deal with um, aspects of history in ways that are outside the context or hard to relate to the context of the larger public meaning of our history, they um, they just don't go there. So it, it, the notion of a larger American story, which is, to use the term I just used, a, um, a public meaning of, of our collective lives yes. together as Americans, our political lives, uh, is less and less available to people. And um, and narrative is uh, is the way that most of us um, understand our place in things. It's the way that our memories are lodged. It's the way that our, our identity is uh, is forged, and our collective identity, particularly, is the, the things that we have experienced together, uh, but both in the present day and in the, our forebears. Uh, um, so. It's a, the the law. It's very different thing. I'll give you an example. Of what I'm talking about is that I have a friend who actually a very wealthy man who believes that what's wrong with America is that young people are not being taught the principles of the founding, and he's right about that. But but if you teach abstract principles, all men are created equal. 
uh, you know, uh, the consent of the governed, whatever things coming from the Declaration of Independence. Um, outside of any sort of context, then those principles metastasize into something that's actually uh, the enemy of liberty. That yes. is, that we have the right to define, you know, all men are created equal means we have the right to define the terms of our existence. And anything that uh, impedes that is an illegitimate um, suppression of, of, our, uh, of our individual rights. Um, you know, we've lost that sense of, uh, of the location of those principles within the concrete context of, a, of historical development and of our of development of our lives together in a, in a specific and real history. So, so yeah, I'm all for the principles of the founding, but I'm also for teaching about the founding. Right. Well, <laughs> the, the, the fact and, is and that, uh, that the, your very use of the category story uh, reminds me of the fact that, uh, and, and you spoke, spoke of it being fundamental or basic. And uh, indeed, uh, as a theologian, I've insisted that uh, Homo sapiens is also Homo narratus. We, we, we are the creature yes. who, uh, who storifies. We, we only know our identity in the context of story. And, and understanding that, uh, we're in a constant conflict of narratives in the modern age, and a part of the problem, uh, I want to say, as a as, as a conservative, is that those narratives have uh, have been, uh, un- uh, I will say, uh, subverted in two ways. One is by suggesting that there can't be a narrative, and the other is by applying mm-hmm. a very different narrative. So, uh, as a teenager, I uh, I came upon actually I was assigned Daniel Borston's three volumes, The Americans. And uh, I, I was captivated by it. I'd read, as a boy, I'd read every book of history I could get my hands on. But that was the first time uh, that uh, I, I was really introduced to that majestic a, uh, a, a, a telling of the American story. But then just a few yeah. years later, out comes uh, Howard Zinn's book uh, in 1980, <laughs> A People's History of the United States. And I'm appalled, but nonetheless, uh, uh, I have to mention that is now the best-selling book in American history in the modern oh, yeah. age. But it's telling a story. That's that second ver- that that's that second subversion. It's it's on on the one hand you have people saying there are no master narratives, there are only micro narratives. But then Howard Zinn comes along and says, yes, there's one giant narrative, and it's that everything America's ever done or been is bad. Yes, and there's and there's even a subset of that. As I re- I, I just published this very week uh, on Monday a. Uh, a piece about a very good book about Howard Zinn's uh, about history and how just taking it apart brick by brick. It's really quite magnificent by Mary Graybar. I recommend it to your listeners um, called debunking Howard Zinn. And that is what it is. Uh, anyway, I've I got the usual, you know, passel of irate um, letters from people, um, um, including a guy who um, berated me for calling in a charlatan and uh, said, you know, that's not the way it's an objective historian talks. And so I, I the tool that I am, I wrote him back. <laughs> she <laughs> shouldn't do that. We should ignore people. But uh, And we got into it. And it turns out that his view of Zinn is that, well, Zinn, um, you know, Zinn just offers an inter- interpretation of American history. It's sort of, uh, it's, his, it's his narrative. It's his voice. Um, and therefore is impervious to the usual standards of Facts. evidence and balance and perspective. Uh, um, it, it's, it stands or falls on whether it is a kind of a, 
a, a cool narrative, <laughs> a persuasive right. narrative. Uh, well, Howard and, Zinn's uh, narrative is very powerful, yeah. and and it was actually being uh, taught to me when I was uh, in in college. I, I I spent a year as a faculty scholar wow. at a state university. As a, I started as a seventeen year old, and and was there through uh, my uh, my eighteenth year. And uh, it, anyway, just just being fed this, and, and and that was just before Zen's book had come out. But nonetheless, the ideas were still very much out there. Noam Chomsky and 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 others. But yes, uh, yes. Th- it was a direct contradiction to what I understood American history to be. And uh, only later, uh, but very quickly, in my own graduate study, did I understand that that's basically the same conflict of narratives that's found in, in looking at all of uh, Western civilization. That the 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 Howard Zinn version of American history actually followed uh, the uh, revisionist histories of uh, of Europe, of Western civilization that uh, came out especially in the '60s. So history's contested territory, and you're a contestant. Yeah, I am. I am. And, and there's another element that you and I can talk about um, that it's harder to talk about in the public arena, and that is the the, the, the it's not a coincidence that this has arisen and become a problem in in a public sphere that has been is, rendered, if not entirely naked, as Richard Newhouse said, yes. but, uh, but de-Christianized in certain ways. I mean, there is, uh, uh, here, let me put it this way, though. I think that some of the scholarship that arose in the 60s um, brought to the fore aspects of our history that... Um, that are uncomfortable, that are unpleasant, that are um, deplorable, damnable. Uh, you know, uh, I, I don't want to start sounding like Reverend Wright here, but I mean, the, 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 there there are these things. Sure. The, the story of uh, American treatment of native, the, the native population, the indigenous population, the story of slavery. They, these are all uh, blots on our national integrity. Well, um, does that mean that, that there's no redemption to be had? Does that does that mean that there's um, uh, that that we alone among the the ga- gallery of nations <laughs> in human history are fallen are are guilty? Yes, yeah, are, are yeah. fallen and guilty. Um, and you know, and I think the great defense of the West, more generally, and not just America, is that we. Um, we're the ones who who eliminated slavery. We're the ones who uh, promulgated notions derived from Christianity, ultimately, but of the fundamental equality of all people in the eyes of God. And and uh, um, it it's uh, it's we we've we we've fallen, but we've been redeemed in some ways by our our acknowledgement of our sins and. So I, I don't favor, and I don't in Land of Hope, favor an approach to the American past that that is all sort of gleaming and perfect and uh, and without without fault, <laughs> without zin, as, uh, as Wag said. Um, yes. But uh, there, there's a context, there's a perspective, and I think being a Christian helps a lot uh, in uh, seeing that in the proper Right, right, because we're looking for two things as Christians. We're we're we're, we're beginning with the uh, the presupposition that human beings are fallen, and that human societies, uh, humanity writ large, will reflect the effects of the fall. And and at the same time, we understand that uh, there's common grace, and that that common grace mm-hmm. 
appears in history, and, uh, and that common grace is demonstrated where there's a greater preservation of human dignity, a greater uh, respect for human liberty, and a, 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 a moral correction or a capacity for that moral mm-hmm. correction that uh, yeah. unfolds over history. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that, that's why the, Christianity is a religion of redemption. It's not a religion of, of perfection, <laughs> uh, right. it, the perfection that we can never achieve uh, apart from Christ, from Christ himself. Um, but yeah, I, and, and you know, it, it's interesting, uh, Dr. Muller, when, when I uh, teach about slavery, you know, my students are always astounded by being told that so slavery is the norm of human history, not the exception. That it, it, it really, until the 18th century, um, there was not a sort of consistent. You know, you couldn't imagine a a consistent anti-slavery movement, right? Uh, coalescing, and even in the 19th century, our abolition movement was a religious movement. You know, 95 percent. Um, and that five percent would not have been enough of its own to uh, to start a secular anti-slavery movement. That uh, the the um, there's so much misunderstanding. It doesn't make slavery any less heinous or any any sin. It doesn't make any sin less sinful. Uh, it it does just remind us that there's number one out there and has been for some time, especially after the Enlightenment, this myth of uh, of civilizational innocence. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that exists among some. And, th- and there is also uh, just a failure to know history. And this is where, as you said, it's, it's a part of it's just facts. So I was confronted with, uh, with someone who uh, threw at me not long ago the accusation that the United States was beyond redemption, and uh, this person was British, uh, because of uh, the American experience of slavery. And I said, so the fact that Britain was a few decades uh, before the United States and ending the slave trade means uh means a difference uh, you know of that quant uh, of that magnitude over against the canvas of history and 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 he said well i hadn't thought of it that way and and i don't mean just to yeah. throw him under the bus it's just the, a, a simple lack of awareness of history and by the way of of the present uh you know there there's a yeah. there's a there's a huge slave trade now, we call it human trafficking now absolutely absolutely and why you know let's pick on the new york times for a minute here why the new york times chooses to um, come out with this really um, indefensible 1619 right. project to to negate the American founding of 1776 to 1789 and, and that, uh, that this uh, very obscure episode in the landing of some 20 Africans who may or may not have been slaves, by the way. They, a lot of historians think they were indentured servants, but but still, you know, I'm, I'm not going to quibble about that. Right. And but to make that the American founding uh, over against the um, you know the work of of the people we call the founders and framers. Right. And so why they would uh, why they would 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 do that is just beyond my understanding. It's um, not it's not beyond mine, professor. It's actually not beyond <laughs> yours either. You, you're being well, kind. Not mine either, you're but being I don't kind like and gracious. Say what I think. Yeah, what what <laughs> what 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 I think is that uh ever since the uh and, and it it's not just in the 1960s with with uh, movements in both Europe and the United States. It it it's older than that. But it's uh, it's the understanding that if you're going to have a rationale for absolute revolution, then you've got to say the project was poisonous at the root. And yeah, I, I think that's yeah. what's going on. Well, I think so. Although I don't think that even the people at the Times quite understand how powerful 
Um, I think Zen did, but I'm not sure these uh, the, the current crop of New York Times liberals understands just how corrosive uh, a project like this can be. Fortunately, and I I think all honor to um, those who've done this that there there are there are eminent historians, all of them liberals, except for me. I, I, I've actually gotten out there on this too, but um, uh, John Willens of Princeton, Gordon Wood, probably yep. the greatest uh, living historian in the United States, yes, have come out very strongly against um, the, the 1619 Project. And I think, mm-hmm. um, the, I think this has had an effect. What's interesting, though, is the historical profession as a whole isn't touching the thing right you know if you would think this would be every historical meeting people would be buzzing about what do you think about this what do you think about that no they don't want to touch it and the reason is i think um i, I don't have to speculate i mean i think most people know that uh, the the claims being made are not historically valid but they fit with a certain kind of contemporary political agenda yeah that's a continuing problem I think of Alan Gelzo, uh, uh, and uh, he's pressed back on this some. I, I've done uh, at least a couple of these things yeah. in the public conversations with him, but I'm paraphrasing him here. But at, at one point, he interjected uh, into the 1619 uh, controversy, simply said, you know, w- which is the more interesting historical question? Why slavery continued or why it didn't? And I'm paraphrasing yeah. him here, but, you know, that that, that to yeah. me is a, 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 is a crucial issue. You know, you have to— the, the the more interesting, given the span of human history, the more interesting question to be answered is is how did it end anywhere? Yes, and why and why what changed in the human sensibility in the West? Um, and actually, up until uh, when I was a graduate student in the the eighties, um, and then on into the early nineties when I was a junior professor. One of the most interesting controversies I've ever seen in the historical profession that was conducted on a very high level was over the role of capitalism in producing what uh, one scholar called the humanitarian sensibility, which was not just anti-slavery, but, uh, you know, reflected in the treatment of, uh, of uh, poverty, of insanity, you know, insane asylums and so on, Penit- penitentiary, all, all these, these sort of rethinking of uh, uh, that goes under the, t- the rubric of humanitarianism. Why did this happen? And uh, Thomas Haskell, late Thomas Haskell of Rice, uh, wrote a couple of brilliant essays connecting it to the rise of capitalism. And then David Bryan Davis, probably the greatest historian of slavery in our time, uh, wrote back cordially, but 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 somewhat uh, testily, <laughs> and wrote a series of articles uh, in the American Historical Review uh, contesting Haskell. It went back and forth, and it was eventually published as a book. And I, when I used to have graduate students, I had um, had always had them read that as a an example of a very high level discussion. But you know, you're right. Ellen is right. It's question: Why then? What what uh, you know? <laughs> Uh, one of the things a historian uh, wants to try to do with, let's say, a great historical event like the French Revolution, the Reformation. Um, why? Why yeah, then? That's right. Why does it happen at the time, that time rather than another? And um, um, slavery is much the same. Why? And um, one of the things I try to stress in Land of Hope is, and, and I don't, I'm very careful to express this in a way that is not 
endorsing any kind of rel- moral relativism. But I say that, look, uh, we live on the other side of this great change of moral sensibility. Um, the question is, why did it happen? Uh, so I actually ask that very question in Land of Hope and to pose it uh, as, a, as something for us to think about and to, to be aware of when we look at at characters in the past. Um, Jefferson, Jefferson is a you know very special case because in fact he was anti-slavery even though he he owned slaves. Of a sort. Really, unlike George Washington, never could quite bring himself to manumit them. <clears throat> but um, but uh, so Jefferson is extremely he Jefferson is right on that cusp of transformation. But there are many others who um, for the longest time. Um, really couldn't make that adjustment. And they looked for biblical warrant. You know, there were great Presbyterian <clears throat> divines in South Carolina, um, Thornwell and others who uh, Dabney found that, yeah, Dabney who found biblical warrant. Uh, and, and, and these guys were <laughs> really quite impressive theologians. I think you'd agree, but um, <clears throat> Eugene Genovese always used to say he thought the, that, the, that those guys had the better of the argument theologically <laughs> compared to the Northerners. Uh, I don't know I'd go that far. But. Well, well, what Genovese was right about was where he said that where uh, a Thornwell and a Dabney argued theologically, they were at least arguing on the basis of a serious theological engagement, uh, whereas the, yeah. uh, you know, Genovese, uh, at, at, for most of his life, was a, a, an agnostic. And, uh, you know, it was he who said, yeah. reading, you know, a lot of the liberal theologians, he said, look, you know, it takes one to no one. I'm an agnostic, and so are they. The difference is, I know I am. Right, right, right. And and when he came back to the church, he came back to Roman Catholicism of his youth uh, uh, and uh, and of his wife Betsy. Um, but yeah, I I think it's 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 terrifically important to um, with something like slavery. And this is where I see. I think the 1619 project could have been a great thing. Um, it could have been a great thing if if they had said, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, in his wonderful chapter of Souls of Black Folk about um, the slave songs, he yeah. says, you know, before before the pilgrims came, uh, we were here. Yep. Um, yeah, and, and and you know, it is a year before <laughs> 1620. Um, before the pilgrims came, we were here, and. Uh, uh, African Americans have been—they're not just some sort of add-on, odd little sort of appendage to American history. African Americans have been part of our history Absolutely. from the beginning, and and this is this is something that needs to be said. It needs to be um, uh, <laughs> read, marked, learned, and inwardly digested. Uh, uh, so they could have done that. They could have done it that way and right. said, "Look." Um, and we as Christians believe in the, the necessary correction of history. Yes, yes, yes. So it, 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 it could have been a way of, uh, of saying we're yet to full. You know, one of the great things about Martin Luther King's greatest oratory is that it, it affirms um, the, the most fundamental American institutions, the foundational institutions. In a way, the 1619 Project negates, but... King affirmed those things, and he said in the great speech at Washington in August of 1963 that uh, 
we're, we, the, the, the Constitution and the Declaration, they were a promissory note. You know, right. they're, we're coming exactly here right. to present an IOU <laughs> exactly. to the government. A wonderfully pithy, you know, uh, way of putting it, that uh, something everybody can understand. Yeah, you know, one way to put it, Professor, is that uh, if if you look at most, uh, say, seventeenth uh, century uh, writings in the English speaking world and, and in the European world, there, there's very little, very little defensiveness about slavery. It seems to be taken as yeah. a, as a matter of fact. By the time you get to the uh, the late eighteenth century and the American founding in particular, uh, it is clear that the founders understood slavery. Uh, to be indefensible, but nonetheless, and, and they embedded, you know, even in the constitutional order, uh, both a, a continuation of slavery and something of a uh, of an argument against it. And yes, yeah, I think that, that that transformation sensibility is happening, and even um, e- even the Southerners who, for economic reasons, felt that they just didn't want to have any discussion of it at the Constitutional Convention were. We're not, uh, you know, they, they weren't rigorously opposed. Uh, I mean, they weren't rigorously in favor of defending the institution on moral grounds. The way that they began to after, right. particularly after the Nat Turner revolt in 1830, 31, um, you know, that when, when there was a discussion at the Virginia, I talk about this in the book, that the Virginia uh, had a discussion about the the, the issues relating to to slavery, and they ended up but deciding to table the matter, and that was really the last chance. But there was very little coming out of that convention of the oratory that suggested any sort of pro-slavery argument, such as you would begin to see right. later in the 1830s and 1840s and 50s. Uh, and uh, so it was a it was a kind of gradual corruption that set in. Absolutely, uh, in certain aspects of Southern life, uh, driven, in my view, by uh, the people will defend economic necessity and moral necessity. They can convince themselves as part of our fallen nature. It was an ex post facto argument, and uh, embarrassing and horrifying arguments made not only by Presbyterians, but by uh, many Baptists in the South as well, and and, and to to our shame. We're talking most importantly about uh, uh, Professor McClay's latest book, Land of Hope, an invitation to the great American story. We've talked about how that story begins. Uh, just a, a, a little footnote here that's just important to me, Professor McClay. You, you start, I think, very helpfully, by the way, in a European context, and uh, as Winston Churchill would appreciate, especially in the context of the English-speaking oh, peoples. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. But, uh, uh, you know, just in that opening part, you say one thing that perplexes me just a little bit. Uh, okay. You say that, uh, and you, you, you rightly, I think, as, a, as, as an historical theologian, I appreciate the fact that you, you take us into the English Reformation, where I think so many of the issues that, uh, that are essential to the uh, American mind uh, emerged in the American experiment in ordered liberty. Uh, you make one statement, and, and, and you, you speak about, of course, Henry VIII and the English Reformation, and then you say that uh, he, he, he never managed to obtain the male heir he sought, and you go from Henry VIII to Anne Boleyn. Uh, as a partisan for Edward the Sixth, why, why did he get left out? <laughs> yeah, you know that that was that was that that was an error. That's an out and out error that I allowed to to slip in. So there's not there's not a there's not an interpretive problem there. That's an error. Uh, <laughs> so um, well, I appreciate actually, you I've, correcting this on I've behalf of Edward the Sixth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And that's why I have a, I have a, a, a copy of the book that I carry around with me for, for errors, and that's one of the biggies. But I have corrected it in something I wanted to mention, you know, for your listeners, just those who are teachers. We are about to publish a teacher's guide. Um, oh, very good. And, uh, and, and the teacher's guide, the teacher's guide corrects this error uh, quite, uh, I hope not overly visibly, but, uh, and and um, um, it, it's uh, it's something that you know it happened in the editing. That's all I can say. It's a, it's, no, I, and it, I didn't mean I, to draw I, I, attention well, to it in in, a, in in that sense. Other than I, I actually thought it was interpretive in one sense because, of course, Edward's rule no. was so short. Uh, but uh, on behalf of the English Reformation, I just want to champion uh, uh, the boy king. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I uh, you're you're right about that, and that was a uh, that's actually the worst error that so far has turned up there's a there's a there's a there's a chart uh, or a, a t- table of economic data towards the end that gets uh, a a billion as a million <laughs> so well that's the kind of intellectual uh, honesty i really i really appreciate by the way i was going to say i have a more than life-size oil portrait of edward the sixth in my personal oh, library wow. so, yes. the, okay. the, so no, i'm one of the few was, i'm one of the few people a, who would be on I, the I lookout <laughs> <laughs> and you know, people. this is one of the things yeah. about writing this kind of book. Is yeah. I, I, I'm not yet past the point of fearing every day I open my email and some reader will say, you know, um, <laughs> you got this boneheadedly wrong. And uh, well, but that's uh, an argument, it, and and in 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 many ways, uh, history is an argument. So uh, again, I yeah, pre- I appreciate is. that clarification. But I just want to tell you, I think your book, Land of Hope, is the most important book. Uh, uh, telling the, st- the American story uh, as a learned academic historian in decades. And I, I more than anything else, am just thankful uh, for this book. And I want to tell you that as someone who's read, I don't know many hundreds of volumes of American history, uh, I really, really enjoyed uh, reading your book. And uh, by the way, my copy is, uh, if, if you could see it, it is completely marked up, which is the way I read a book that I enjoy. <laughs> That's good. That's the way, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's like John Locke says that, you know, you, uh, uh, something becomes your property by your, it's becoming mixed with your labor. And that's, uh, right. that's how you appropriate uh, that's right. a book is by, by marking it and interacting with it and arguing with it and throwing it and, Absolutely. Well, I didn't. Uh, I, I didn't want but, to throw it. I wanted to. Uh, I, I wanted. <laughs> and, uh, there were so many paragraphs well, I wanted I to continue. You, yeah. I want to say before you get off of that, I, that, that one of the one of the things since you mentioned Zen, you know, one of the things that my publisher more than me, but my publisher wanted to think of this book as the counter to Zen, um, and I didn't consciously write it that way, except in the sense that where Zen oversimplifies and presents a negative and comic book view. Uh, it's really a comic book view of American history. It's a very fun narrative and you see why kids like it. But um, in place of that, I wanted a, a objective, loving, nuanced view. Um, you know, the kind of um, view that, again, like the, the presupposes love. Uh, the, the kind of love that a citizen rationally and rightly um, gives to his to his country, uh, and no more than that, but no less than that. Uh, so, I, I really, it, I it, think it, that it, comes it, through. I really appreciate that. Uh, and of course, uh, as we get to the end of the conversation, we'll, we'll talk a bit about a proper patriotism, just a, a, in an historical mm-hmm. perspective, and and 
that's incredibly relevant at the at the current time. Uh, so I am a theologian and a historical theologian. So when I read a book like this, and uh, and as an historian, I'm looking at it thinking primarily about uh, the intersection of historical events and ideas. And uh, I, can't, I can't help but to think about the ideas. And uh, I think that's one of the great benefits of your book is that you deal so seriously with ideas, as, as you have throughout your academic life. But uh, you also deal with, uh, with what even many well-intended theologians just don't get, and, and, and that is uh, a lot of the theological content uh, of, of these ideas. And mm-hmm. I just want you to know I appreciated mm-hmm. that. And, and in that sense, there, there were two parts of your book that were the most fun for me uh, along these lines. And one of them had to do with the, with the early American period and the, and, and the rise of transcendentalism and, and that, that entire movement. And you pointed out that it was a rejection of the Unitarianism that was mm-hmm. a rejection mm-hmm. of Christian orthodoxy. Anti-anti. <laughs> it was anti-anti. Right. But the interesting thing about it is that uh, I, I've always thought as a, a, a 20th and now 21st century American that, uh, that people are attracted to the transcendentalists while basically never even attempting to inhabit the world they actually inhabited. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, and you could say that even of of, of Emerson, that Emerson really right. lived a, a very uh, a bourgeois life <laughs> while kind of racing in all every direction in his imagination. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think— um, I I think I understand what you mean by that. Is that that that? Uh, well, they're um, treated as countercultural, but Thoreau came into town mm-hmm. several times a week. You know, in other words, they were. Mm-hmm. They, I I see yes. them as kind of hob, uh, ideological uh, and cultural hobbyists. Yes, yes. No, that's right. That's right. I think, I, I mean, and you know, this is Hawthorne. One of the many great things about Hawthorne is that he was part of that circle, but he was skeptical. But then. His novel, uh, Blythdale Romance, is uh, a thinly veiled uh, account of his own involvement in Brook Farm, the utopian experiment that um, George Ripley and some other of these transcendentalists uh, put together. And that, like, you know, we're old enough to remember the hippie communes of the 60s and 70s, and it always degenerated. I remember when I was in college, people who were inclined this way, they they, they would always get into arguments about who took out the trash and on Tuesday night, who who uh, who does the dishes, and you know, it always would degenerate into this, this kind of fracas, uh, while beginning with a kind of small C communistic warmth and and sometimes religiously uh, um, motivated. So um, Hawthorne was the he was the diagnostician of the frivolity. Um, and blindness, yeah. uh, blindness to sin, blindness to the sinful nature of man, in uh, in the, the transcendental movement, and and in much of American sort of northern Whig culture, you know, the the the, the very people who who were uh, who involved themselves in anti-slavery, you know, uh, they were what Reinhold Niebuhr would call children of the light, um, uh, and and yet he. Uh, Diagnose their 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 uh, their blindnesses and their follies. Well, with with that uh, and with the the transcendentalists and even before them the Unitarians that they were seeking to uh, to to counter, 
uh, Unitarianism was in so many ways an elitist effort to try to maintain some kind of Christian morality without Orthodox Christianity, and it it didn't last, uh, you know, so you you really can't have any lasting uh, Christian morality without uh, without Orthodox Christian theology, Uh, and, and Unitarianism, I mean, it it became so dominant, and you indicate this, but it really became so dominant in the, the East Coast elites that, uh, you know, e- even by the time you come to a Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, in the middle of the 20th century, e- even though theologically he wasn't really a Unitarian, his, his religious worldview is still Unitarian. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, he was an Episcopalian, uh, and, and uh, uh, you know, of course, that Officially. a variety yeah. of things in, yeah. the, in the 30s, uh, as it does now. I mean, they're a few Orthodox people in the Episcopal Church, but uh, a few of them. But um, uh, yeah, I think uh, that you, 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 it's interesting how dominant it was and yet how feeble it was, how easily um, it was dislodged. You know, when Emerson, the, you know, the great um, bolt of his career comes at the, in the 1837, where he gives the Phi Beta Kappa speech at Harvard. Um, uh, the American scholar. And it's basically a extended middle finger <laughs> to the people who had educated him to the, and everybody in the audience, um, which included, um, you know, the, the governor, uh, political dignitaries of various sorts. Um, and he did the same thing in his divinity school address, um, yes. in 1838, uh, which again is, is, um, is, Really, uh, an effort to kind of um, puncture the self-satisfied complacency of uh, of the Unitarian elite that ran Harvard Divinity School at that time. I, I had the Harvard uh, Divinity School then. Yeah. I was it was a hotbed of fidelity, but <laughs> well, it was uh, a hotbed of infidelity among real believers. Well, absolutely. I mean, it, it went Unitarian so early, and Unitarianism yes, became yes. The, 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 the basic structure. I had the experience of giving a, a, a talk in the, the very room where uh, Emerson gave his Divinity School address, and uh, I just said that what Emerson was calling for is exactly what I've uh, uh, committed my life to trying to prevent. Um, yes. You know, he, he, exactly. he spoke to those yes. divinity students and said he wanted them each to understand himself to be a newborn bard of the Holy Spirit. You know, a com- yes. in other words, every a new religion yes. coming yes. out of every single one of you. And the entire, uh, you know, uh, adult phase of my life has been committed to uh, my life's calling to saying to young ministers, you are not a newborn bard of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> That's right. Uh, you are, you are right. to be a minister of the word. That's a very different thing. Yes, yes. You know, one thing I want to say just in, in passing, though, is that it is interesting how much um, Daniel Walker Howe is a friend of mine. He's one of the great historians of Unitarianism. He's, he, he is, uh, he, among other things, he wrote a you know, terrific book that was sort of the history of this whole period for the Oxford history of the United States. But he he always defends the, what he calls the Unitarian conscience. And there is and and he's right uh, in the sense that there is um there's a residual um sort of moral reflex coming out of trinitarian christianity coming out of calvinism ultimately out of out of the calvinism of the of the the first settlers of that region that um that that continues on even into the unitarianism you know i i have a 
uh, I like to collect hymnals and, and uh, periodically pull them out and play play hymns on the piano and look at different arrangements. And uh, I have a Unitarian hymnal from the, oh, I think it's post-Civil War, hmm. maybe 1870s, something like that. But it, it's interesting how Trinitarian, I mean, it has holy, holy, holy in it, for example. Right. Uh, which right. is the, you know, maybe the most Trinitarian of all sort of commonplace hymns. Um, it has, and, and, uh, and you read some of these guys, yes. uh, even Emerson, you know, Emerson gave, uh, famously, you know, he started out as a Unitarian minister and he resigned, um, conveniently after his wife's death and his inheritance, uh, from, from her, uh, her family. Um, he quit the ministry and sort of decided he was going to be a freelance intellectual of some sort, but he, he gave a final sermon in which he explained himself, uh, why he was leaving, um, the ministry. And his, his issue was that he couldn't, it, what he claimed was his issue was that he couldn't administer the Lord's supper in good faith. Well, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that really for a Unitarian, this should not be an issue. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. You, you, well, why are you doing it in the first place? Yes, a- uh, absolutely. And, yes. Right. And, and if, if, if it is not even a memorial, that's right. Um, uh, like, let alone sacramental in the Roman Catholic uh, or Anglican way. Um, well, the Unitarians were quite. Uh, or yeah. if you're doing it, why are you attributing any significance to it at all? Right. Um, well, and and I think the traditional answer would be that the uh, the Unitarians in the 19th century were okay with anything being expressive, but nothing being metaphysical or ontological. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's that's probably right. And he. But he he is, uh, and it's actually quite a beautiful sermon in its own way. Well, he was um, very gifted. I mean, it, I, I, the the world is rarely changed by people who can't make a good argument. And uh, <laughs> no, and his, his Emerson can make a good argument, argument. which mm-hmm. which which really, I think, if he had not been so hell bent on uh, reacting against authority at the time, I, I think it could have been put to constructive use, right. which says a kind against a kind of nominalism, a kind of right. tendency to take the symbol of the thing as the thing itself, you know, to right. see, um, as William Blake would say, to see with the eye and rather than through it. Uh, and uh, I think what he was straining for, it, it was, uh, and maybe his tradition didn't give it to him, was some some kind of larger right. sense of sacramentalism of the way that the things of this world point beyond themselves. Uh, it's interesting, you know, Perry Miller, the great historian whom nobody, nobody but me reads anymore, but great reviver of Puritan thought in America in a lot of ways. He wrote an essay called Edwards to Emerson, which if you've never read it, you might find very interesting. I have. Really tries but, to, yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Glad it, to be it, reminded it, of it. You know the argument that just he he, uh, he sees there being a kind of straight line, right? Connecting you know Edwards's view of of the universe as being full of uh, signs, right. full of a kind of semiotic universe with Emerson's. Because uh, the Emerson naturalizes this, uh, which is a key. Heretical, absolutely. Mood. But uh, yeah. but but the, 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 epistemologically, there's a lot of similarity between 
there's this sort of strain there. Nobody's really followed up on that. In and they're certainly way. both uh, indispensable parts of telling the American story, which is your purpose in uh, Land of Hope, subtitled An Invitation to uh, the Great American Story. By the way, just a, a tiny little footnote here. You mentioned the New York Times and what could have been in their 1619 project and, 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 and isn't. And I said, well, the, you know, the, the part of the problem is that, uh, uh, that if you follow the logic that is behind the kind of historiography and what they did do, it, it, it not only, uh, you know, makes the founding of the United States to be a great historical error. It also undermines the uh, authority and rationale for something like the New York times. And it reminds me of a, hmm. of a cartoon from the 70s where it, it, it showed a group of people and they had long hair. It was kind of the hippies of the age. And anyway, they were saying, down with the man, down with the man, down with the man, the guy was saying who had the megaphone. And they said, aren't you chairman of this thing? And he said, the revolution ends now. The revolution ends now. And I think that's a, that's – that's a part of what's going on. It's like it's like the Marxist professor, or even yeah. worse, uh, you know, the, the an outright communist professor who's got uh, you know investments in the stock market for his or her you know uh, retirement account. It's it's just a very interesting thing to watch, but rarely do you get to see it you know played out um, on the great tableau of history as we do right now. Yeah, well, and of course, if you start thinking about the New York Times, you know, I, I'm the. the uh, the family I used, I lived in Chattanooga for a number of years, so I'm well aware of the the Ox family, right. the Ox Salzberger family that actually runs the Times and has since Adolf Ox purchased it. And you know that this this was uh, this was a, a man who um, was a, a strong supporter of the racial policies of the Southern Democrats. Yeah. Well into the 20th century, you know Woodrow Wilson, who was uh, Certainly, if there's any president of whom we could say he, you know, without asterisks or you know scare quotes that he was a racist, we could say it about Wilson. True. Um, uh, I'm, I'm sort of a virulent non-admirer of Wilson, but uh, uh, I'm not. I, sure I, sh- I share, I share book, that with you. I tried bent over backwards. Yep. To be fair to him, and people have complained to me, "Why are you so nice to Woodrow Wilson?" And I sort of, oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the, the I one thing, and uh, I, I actually want to turn to that that chapter in American history. The one thing that I I, I was uh, I was looking for in your treatment of Wilson is the recognition of his basic Hegelianism. You know, the, the his his understanding of yes, history yes, and this that's right, yeah, he, unfolding he, progress. Yeah. Well, and he was kind of similar to Dewey, John Dewey, the philosopher, in the sense that Dewey started out as a Hegelian and then discovered Darwin. Yeah, and he sort of transposed. Um, a kind of Hegelian way of thinking about, um, uh, you know, the the, the 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 way historical change occurs and and applied it. But the, and and uh, Wilson really ran with the, the Darwinian thing in the same way that Dewey did. Um, um, actually, around the same time Dewey was Dewey was running with it. Well, I, I thought your treatment of progressivism was very fair. But I, 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 I really appreciate the fact that you dealt with it, uh, again, uh, understanding its theological undertones as well. You can't, yes. you can't th- take that away from Wilson. I mean, just I, I gave the, uh, uh, a series of lectures just uh, recently in Columbia, uh, South Carolina, the, the, the First Presbyterian Church there, and right in the, right in the churchyard are Wilson's parents uh, buried. Yes. And, uh you know, he he was yeah. raised in a Presbyterian yeah. man's, and uh, and by the way, his father was a fairly theologically liberal Presbyterian in the South, and also uh, 
he and uh, and and the man from whom uh, Wilson uh, took the name he wanted history to, uh, to by which he wanted history to know him Woodrow uh, rather yeah. th- rather than what his mother wanted to call him as Thomas and uh, he yeah. took that he, again evolutionist so Dar- Darwin's in the background there constantly yes 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 that's good that's a that's a good good point and I I think you know I'm I'm uh, by the way I I have a my PhD from Johns Hopkins says. Woodrow Wilson did, and I was uh, raised uh, as a Presbyterian uh, in, in the old United Presbyterian Church, which was pretty liberal. Um, it was it was it was liberal enough that I, I, although I had wonderful Sunday school teachers, I really didn't learn anything. I I summarized the theology I learned was that Jesus was a very nice man who died. Therefore, we should be nice too. And uh, I got to confirmation age, and by and, and and I said to my parents, you know, I don't. This doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> and, and so I, I was. My parents said, well, you know, don't, we're not going to have you be confirmed if you don't, if you don't, if you can't, in good conscience, sign the bottom line. So I, I was, I was, it was against liberal theology even before I knew what it was. I, I recognized there was something uh, insubstantial in that. And you recognize it in your book as as having a, a driving yeah. impulse in the progressivist movement. And uh, again, yeah. uh, in one sense, political progressivism was a channeling of what in other times would have been a religious theological energy uh, into public yeah. policy. Yeah, well, not unlike abolition, um, uh, which I think was, uh, in, in many respects, a worthy cause. Uh, I mean, obviously, a worthy cause in one respect. I mean, what I do hold against the abolitionists is they had no, took no responsibility for what came afterward, and, uh, uh, and that's really an appalling lapse on their part, with a few exceptions. But one thing I wanted to say about progressivism too is that I try very hard. You know, a lot of my friends, the conservative friends, who are who don't like progressivism and don't, as I don't, uh, and. Uh, and see it as a really traducing of the constitution and all that. It, I think all of that's correct, but you cannot um, leave out of the picture. And this is one of the things that history ought to do. This goes back to your question about story that history, you know, we ought to be able to see that there's a reason why people were drawn to these ideas, the transformation of American yes. life that took place in the aftermath of the civil war industrialization, urbanization, immigration on mass scale, uh, uh, the communications, the transportation, all these things going on at once. Um, a little bit like the times we've been living through uh, in the last 20, 25 years or so, but uh, utter transformation of things. And uh, it, it's small wonder that some people started thinking, you know, uh, we really need a different kinds of political institutions to cope with this, to cope with the problems yeah. of the cities. Uh, right. These cities that are unlike any cities we've ever had in America before. And it's fair to say that we're thankful for uh, many of the progressivist aims and policies. Yeah. I, I, I admit I am. Yeah. I, I yeah, I, I I don't want to be intellectually dishonest there, but the basic motivation behind it, and and furthermore, what I saw is more dangerous in Wilson. I end up talking about Woodrow Wilson a lot uh, in in and in, in both in in my mm. talks and in in my writing. Have these even published? I'd be interested, very interested to read them. Well, I, mean, I uh, 
Yes, as a matter, in fact, as a matter of fact, I'm working on something about that right now. But the point, I, the the point that I seek to make, and and it's it's more been in my lectures and talks than anything else at this point, is that when you look at Wilson, you're looking at someone who saw and said long before he was uh, elected president that he saw the United States Constitution as something that needed to be uh, sidelined in in national yeah. life. And, uh, and very and, clear about that. Absolutely. And so, you know, throwing off all restraints. Now, I think in honesty, I have to admit that I, I've got a, a, a bust of Theodore Roosevelt also in my library because I admire so mm-hmm. much about Roosevelt's character. But I do not appreciate Theodore Roosevelt's, you know, uh, no. uh, a well, rejection of enumerated powers. Awful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and in a way, Wilson was methodical about it. Right. TR being TR was sort of slapdash kind of, well, you know, um, to hell with the constitution when people need coal. Is that, <laughs> do I have that right? I think, yeah. you know, it, it, uh, he, um, uh, the anthracite strike, you know, that he, he, uh, he was very much, uh, a man of action and, uh, the whole, um, messiness, of our constitution. I mean, it's an institutionalized form of messiness, particularly if you think of uh, the conflicts, not only on the federal level between the three branches of government, but between the the national government and the states and localities. We're going through some of this right now with the way that President Trump is trying to reopen the country, which I think is commendable. Uh, We've never really done it this way before. We've never done a sort of decentralized um, action yeah. on a national scale, but that's that's administered by local officials who are accountable to their constituents and uh, and who can take into account the particularities of of their circumstances. You know, this is this is a great thing. I hope for all sorts of reasons that it succeeds because I think it's uh, this is the great strength of American federal institutions, not small f federal institutions right. or or subsidiarity to use the Catholic uh, European Catholic term. But, uh, you know, the idea that uh, political affairs are best handled and managed That's through right. those uh, to whom, who are closest to them. That's right. I think Christopher DeMuth uh, made that argument in the Wall Street Journal just this week that uh, this kind yes, of crisis, uh, yes. you know, is remarkable in the United States because of the lack of all of a sudden uh, a federal government seizing control of everything, which it would not be competent to do anyway. So yeah. I, I think yeah. that's kind of a reassuring uh, reality in the midst of this. I, I, I've appreciated this conversation so much. And, uh, oh, I, this has I, been I, fun. I'd want to talk about every page in your book, frankly, but I, I want to come to the end uh, of your telling of the story and, and, and raise an issue that, uh, that you actually raised in the beginning of your book, and that is the difficulty of writing about uh, events and times closer at hand. And uh, yeah. so, you know, by the time you get to the the, the last, uh, you know, couple of chapters of your book, uh, decades are uh, compressed into much less space and yeah. uh, analysis yeah. than what we found earlier. But you, you explained that early on. You, how, so how long does it take before you can write an adequate history of a time? Boy, that is uh, that is a great question. You know, I I, I think um, um, that uh, uh, you know because even when you reach a point where the issues um, 
um, that, that, that were being engaged at the time become sort of moribund or that, that the embers cool and, and die. Well, then, you know, you don't, you actually don't bring a kind of vitality of interest to the subject. So there's a trade-off there, you right, know, right. uh, uh, there, there's a sweet spot, I think, um, in, uh, in, in the middle somewhere where, you know, you're, you're remote enough that you're not completely taking up with getting even or with, with this faction or that faction or justifying this or that, but you could step back, but not so far back as that, that you're, you're writing about ancient Rome. Um, although even there people <laughs> have right. party pre that they take to uh, discussions. I know I, I think, for example, in American history, they, that Nixon's presidency, it seems to me, is one that is still the jury. Is, and I say this in the book. I mean, in some ways, the jury is still out. I, it, it's it's uh, and so it's been 50 years, roughly a little more. Uh, uh, well, actually less. But um, um, that that. Um, since since he was elected, so a little a little over fifty years, but uh, we we um, I think I don't think we're yet at a point of right. really being able to Nixon said that evaluate himself. that presidency. I mean, Nick Nixon himself, as I recall, said you know it'd be fifty years before there could be any adequate yes. understanding of his administration. Then it was uh, President yes. George W. Bush who, uh, you know, I, I think yeah. it was uh, uh, Bob Woodward who asked him, you know, how do you think history is going to deal with you? And he said, I, I don't know, and I don't care. By then, I'll be dead. Uh, there's some truth yeah. in that, but history doesn't wait. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, it, it is it uh, is being written right now. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But I I I think um, you know it is one. Of, I, I, here, here's an interesting way of approaching this this topic. Is I I've been doing a lot of writing lately. Uh, I had to do this teacher's guide, which preoccupied me and mm-hmm. along with my teaching, and and finally got that out. And I had this great pile of essays and book reviews and things I owe to people. So I'm working through that pile. And, and uh, of course, it's the temptation to uh, for, make everything about the coronavirus. Right. Because that, that's everything that you're reading is sort of, you know, love in the time of coronavirus, uh, you know, food in the time right. of coronavirus. It's right. just ridiculous. And uh, the pandemic cookbook. It, yeah. And I think these articles are going to look ridiculous in maybe even a few months, but certainly in a few years, um, and will be more a sign of the pathology of the time and the freak out, the general freak out of intellectuals than yeah. of of, uh, of anything more substantial. You know, doing but, the briefing um, every every weekday, I have I've, I and, and look, I understand something of how this comes about, but I pointed out that uh, in a newspaper like the Washington Post, the New York Times, Los Angeles Times. You can find major articles making opposite points in the middle of this pandemic within a few days now. Everyone just depends upon the fact yes. that, that, you know, no one's going to read last week's Los Angeles Times. And uh, so they can get away with it. But as an historian, you can't get away with it. No, and you shouldn't try. And and you should be prepared for the possibility that people are going to to look at what you're saying with a rather blank expression because it will it'll it'll be expressed in terms that are completely alien to what they're thinking about. Um, you know, uh, it, I, I've had, <laughs> I, I, the first book signing I did when Oklahoma city, uh, it, 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 it all went swimming and then this elderly gentleman kind of stood up and said, well, yeah, but what about Trump? And I said, well, what do you mean? What about Trump? <laughs> 
the where what what doesn't that sort of negate all of this and i said are you crazy and actually i think he was crazy but uh um he i said you know this is the whole point of the exercise of writing and reading and thinking about history is to place yourself uh, to free yourself from the prison house of the present. The present is a prison house. Um, to, to have our consciousness uh, uh, completely dictated by what's in front of us, by the, the flow of, of daily news, much of it uh, sort of lies and conjurings, um, uh, instead of, uh, of, of recurring to things that are more enduring, things that are more permanent, perspectives that have deeper roots and, and longer horizons. That's, that's what it's all about. And by the way, I mean, that is, uh, uh, that's part of what we try to do and try to teach others to do as Christians is to, you know, we walk by faith and not by sight. We walk uh, in the light of um, a, a word that was given to us. Well, the word that was, was the beginning and, uh, and uh, we walk in in the light of a, of, a, of a knowledge that was revealed thousands of years ago and yet is enduring. I'll leave that as the last word of our conversation. Many thanks to my guest, Professor Wilford McClay, for thinking with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you'll find more than 100 of these conversations at albertmuller.com. Just look under the tab, Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Muller.